This is episode number 469 with Professor Conrad Kurding of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and I am honored and delighted that Conrad Kurting took time out of his week to join me on this episode. Conrad is a full professor at the prestigious University of Pennsylvania, where his research lab bridges the fields of biological neuroscience and artificial neural networks like deep learning networks. Yes, he carries out extremely interesting research that strikes at the heart of what intelligence is and how it can be replicated in machines. We talk about this a fair bit in the episode, largely in straightforward terms with lots of vivid analogies. Another core topic in the episode is Neuromatch, a massive, innovative deep learning education program that Conrad leads that matches students with similar interests, languages, and time zones into 10-person study pods. This matching approach is wildly successful, with 86% of students completing the program compared to a 10% industry average. We dig into the Neuromatch curriculum, which allows us to both introduce and to discuss the state of the art in deep learning across all of the core deep learning approaches. We cover the mathematical and programming foundations you should ideally possess to make the most of studying deep learning, convolutional networks for machine vision, recurrent networks for processing natural language, generative adversarial networks for artistic creativity, and deep reinforcement learning for complex sequential decision-making like playing games and driving vehicles autonomously. Finally, Conrad shares his rich thoughts on what stands in the way of deep learning enabling machines to learn as well as humans learn. And he fills us in on how these limitations may be overcome in the future. Despite Professor Kurting's incredible depth of experience, we largely keep the content at a high level, making this episode perfect for technical and non-technical folks alike who'd like to understand the leading edge of artificial intelligence today, as well as predictions for how AI may or may not transform the world in the coming decades. Conrad, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Where are you calling from today? So I'm at home in Philadelphia. It's a wonderful day with sunshine on the outside, and I haven't left my home in a long time. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're nearing the beginning of the end of the pandemic. So we're recording end of April, and something that's been super exciting for me to watch over the last couple of weeks on Manhattan. So we have, you know, regional specific COVID stats. And three weeks ago, we were at a 3% positive test rate. And now we're at a 1% positive test rate with uh, the level of vaccination that's happened here. So you might get to go outside someday soon. Well, I'm kind of jealous because our numbers, I believe, affect us three worse than yours right at this time. Oh, no. <laughs> so hopefully soon. All right. I hope so as well. Looking forward to a return to normality. So you have an incredible academic background. 
I'd love for you to tell us in your own words a little bit about what your specializations are. So I, I know that you have a big specialization in the relationship between biological neural networks and artificial neural networks, like deep learning neural networks. You want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, like I think ultimately I'm really interested in intelligence. And to really understand intelligence, I believe we need to look at biology at people, and hence a lot of my research was about how do people solve problems. And I think we also need to look towards neuroscience, where we've been looking, well, what's happening in the brain while we perceive things, while we move? And then lastly, I think we really need to start building artificial intelligence and trying to solve the same kinds of problems that biology is good at solving. So in that sense, uh, I'm interested in all these different aspects of that. And that's why if you actually look at my CV, I look like I'm very badly specialized. I have written <laughs> papers in lots of different areas. Not like, how do we get electrodes into brains? How can we treat various diseases? And uh, how does the brain work? But like, they all just aim at more or less doing the same thing, which is just understand intelligence broadly construed. All right, so many exciting things to talk about related to your academic research. I can't wait to dig into it with you. However, first, I would like to talk about the NeuroMatch Academy, which is a program that you conceived of uh, that is related to the intersection of your biological and your artificial neural network worlds that you straddle. So this program launched last year for the first time. It's an intensive three-week summer school on neuroscience, and then separately, three weeks on deep learning. I assume people can sign up for one or the other or both, depending on their interests. And you're running it again for a second time this summer. So tell us a bit about the program. That's right. So it, everything started last year when the pandemic hit. At that point of time, before last year, I was organizing the summer school in neuroscience. How does that work? You bring in 20 or 40 students from worldwide. You bring in 10 lecturers, some. The lecturers all come, they fly in, they talk for a day, and then they fly back. The students learn a lot in that period of time. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit, there was over. Mm -hmm. And so then we decided, well, what if we could bring this online? In fact, lots of other people had summer schools as well. There's about 10 summer schools in neuroscience. So we all joined forces. So we decided as a big team, we mm. ended up being about 300 people wow. to try and make a three-week summer school as the best that we could possibly build as this joint team. Now, what, how do you do that? You know, like Normally, a professor brings some tutorial, and the tutorial you know, is not always so great. If we're in a big team, we can really try and optimize all aspects about that, which is what we did. And we try to optimize the format. So instead of the usual professor gives lectures and then there's homework work, we went to this format where it's like you just as a professor describe five minutes what that concept is and they immediately do it. Mm. And we have this format where everything happens in Google Colab. So you see the video explaining things in Colab and then right below it, you do the exercises. Mm. And then comes the next concept. So you learn by doing and we found that that's incredibly effective in computational neuroscience. And there's also a tutorial component, like a small class size component. So that's actually where the match in NeuroMatch comes from, right? That's right. We bring people, we believe in the power of groups. So we bring people in small groups, 10 people at a time, 
with the TA that we pay. And we make it so that these groups are good fits to one another. We run algorithms that match people, bring together groups that have similar interests. What does that mean? We bring together people that speak the same language. And there's a lot of people who prefer that there's someone who they can speak with in another language. Oh, interesting. So, for example, we had German, Italian, Mandarin. We had 13 different languages. We also bring to, uh, people together that are interested in similar things. We bring together people that are at similar stages of their career. Mm-hmm. And with that, we can have these groups of learners that really help one another. So what kinds of questions do people answer? Do people answer open-ended questions or do you have specific like multiple choice questions that people answer about themselves? Do you have an algorithm that matches people or does it happen all by hand? Well, uh, if you have thousands of people, matching people by hand is maybe not such a great <laughs> idea. We, I mean, uh, full disclosure, we had the idea <laughs> and we decided that we didn't have the manpower to match people like that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we run algorithms for that. In fact, the whole Neomatch movement came from before the pandemic hit. We were bringing people together in these mind matching sessions where we introduced pairs of people that we felt had scientific common interests mm. and they had a great time talking with one another and before the pandemic hit we already wanted to bring that online so once the pandemic hit we were like basically ready to go and that's how the movement got off the ground so fast so when that was running in person matching people together like that even just the the one-on-one matching so that was i assume mostly academics was that happening physically at the university of pennsylvania in philadelphia it, no it was happening at conferences so uh. this is absolutely Crazy. So you fill a room with like 200 people. They all have little printed cards where it says whom they should meet at which point of time. <laughs> Someone's in front of everyone and says, Dung, it's time for session number three. And then everyone has which table and which person at which table. Now, the main complaint that we get is like, I had great discussions with the people, but it was hard to understand anything because you have a room of like 200 people where right. every pair of people talks with one another. Right. So in that sense, online is much better because we can bring these groups together and also pairs together. I think it's a good idea. In fact, the Data Science Go virtual conference that Super Data Science organizes, um, it has a similar kind of thing where you get paired online with somebody, it's kind of like a speed dating experience uh, in that case that you can facilitate online where um, I haven't actually gone through it myself. So uh, hopefully I'm getting this exactly correct, but it's something like you spend five minutes with somebody, although I think that it's random. Um, So maybe there's a real opportunity here to be using uh, some information to be having it be non-random. Yeah, and, and our algorithms are all on GitHub. So you're oh, very welcome to no try how well that works. Oh, and wow. what we what we do is it's actually quite simple. Now, like everyone describes their interests as a hundred word little abstract. It could be an essay or something. And then just we do simple topic modeling and match people that are similar in this topic space. And then there's a linear programming component to make the groups. Now, like you need to make sure that every person sees the same number of people. There's a couple of constraints like this. Very cool. So tell us a bit about the curriculum for the deep learning school. So we'll talk a little bit about the neuroscience school as well. But I think for our audience, probably the deep learning school is probably most interesting. I think it's three weeks, right? And so what's the, how much time do people spend every day? And, you know, how does the day 
break up? Are you, you, I guess you spend part of your day watching those five minute lectures and then doing the hands-on code and then, yeah. So then how often do you end up talking with your teammates? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Let's go how the day works. So in the morning, everyone meets in this group of 10 people and they jointly do the tutorials, which is really great because uh, in many components of the tutorial, the students can share a screen. Basically, they'll be in a Zoom breakout room and the TA can then go from person to person, like look over their shoulder, over their metaphorical shoulder <laughs> and help them. And they can then ask, look, I'm having this error or like, uh, why does my code not do what I think it should be doing? So we find that it's incredibly helpful to have this TA that goes through them. And then, of course, we also have these discussion sections in that group of 10 people where it's like, why do you think uh, FaceNet is a problem from a racism perspective? Right. There are all those components where people need to talk with one another. And so this happens during the first four hours. Like you always do 45 minutes, which are three times the five-minute lectures plus 10 minutes doing it. And then you have 15 minutes break. So that's what happens in the morning. Then you'll have a break. And then in the afternoon, you do projects where you really get together with people with similar interests and start building code in deep learning that, that you actually use for a project. So with thousands of students, do, do, does morning mean like morning Eastern time in the US or do you have uh, start times all over the globe? Well, well, we are running on 11 time zones. Wow. We are running all over the world. Uh, our map of who's taking our course is online. But yes, we have a large group of people from China participating, a large group of people from Ooh. India participating. We have the Japanese participating. Wow. So we are running on 11 time zones. And that means that most of our material is basically localized only within that group of 10 people that are together. And then, of course, we need to have question and answer sessions and mentorship events. And for those, we make sure that we stagger them through the different time zones so that everyone has access. So we are using three time zones for that. And then, of course, it means that the local group will at times move, have to move a little bit to make space for the question and answer session on their respective time zone. That is so and you cool. Can't yeah, you can't do global unless you're really on all time zones. There's yeah. no choice. I've done a lot of conferences online since the pandemic hit, and I have not participated in one that has uh, varying start times like this. That is a really cool approach. I, I like that. So what kind of person is ideally suited to taking this? What kind of mathematical or programming background do you already need to have to make use of the deep learning summer school at Neuromatch? Uh, this is a fantastic question. So to, for, for the cost to be useful, you need to be able to code in Python because everything is about building neural networks in PyTorch. So if you don't have Python, this is not a good way of learning Python. So you need Python and then you need like the basics of what would be part of a data science course. Now, like You need to understand matrices because tensors don't make much sense until you understand matrices. You need to understand basic calculus, you know, like calculate derivatives, the chain rule, uh, you, you should know some basics about data science, like the need for regularization, L1, L2 regularization, the kinds of things that any data science course will teach you. But how do we define ourselves? We want to be like the gentle course, the course that 
makes it easy for you to get the skills that you actually need for your career. So therefore, we are, we are trying to do all the things that make it easy to like stick with the program. Now, like you're in a group of 10 people, which means that if you fall out, there's nine other people who will have gotten to know you during the first days who might send you an email like, hey, John, we are missing you. Why you're not here? Right. And the effect of that was is that we have very, very little dropout. And the other thing is we have this big group working on the materials. So the materials are just awesome. They're just at the right level. And therefore, what we want to be is this inclusive, positive, friendly space in which you can learn the skills that you really want to have. You actually, on a previous call that you and I had, you mentioned to me the dropout rates that are normal in these kinds of massive courses. Do you remember that stat? Yeah, if I remember it right, typical dropout rate, uh, typical completion rates for MOOCs right. are between 5 and 15%. And in our case, I believe it's 86% of people wow. like, really make it all the way through the course. And that isn't because we make it easy. It's because we support people at learning the things that they really want to learn. Brilliant. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science. Yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week -week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is Super Data Science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days, and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com slash challenge, download the 99-day study plan, and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now, let's get back to this amazing episode. So in order to take this, you would really need to set aside the time you need to set set aside three continuous weeks to study it full time, right? That's that's right. Now, like it runs from August second to August twentieth. Every morning you learn. Every afternoon you work on your projects. There's not gonna be all that much extra time. Sure, that's that's if, if you have a family, you will be able to look after your family at the same time. Right. But right, it's right. not something where you could realistically do a full eight hour job and on top of it do like eight hours of learning. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's time that you need to put aside to for this learning task. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially with the interactivity. I suppose, you know, in that small percent of people who who don't uh, make it through on time, I suppose some of them could be going through the materials asynchronously, uh, which of course is something that anyone could do. You can go back and review things. Um, yeah, all our materials are open source. All the videos are there. And we had in the neuroscience course, we had a lot of people, they call it slow pot. They basically get together with a posse of friends 
and just say we do one day of the summer school every week. And then they meet once a week, maybe on a Saturday, and then they go through the materials in detail, and that helps them a great deal. I would like to briefly, if that's fine, John, talk about the curriculum, because I think that's also very important. Absolutely. It was on my list to ask you. Yeah. So, so, so the idea is that we want to give people the full skill set of deep learning, not at the level where you could mostly be a researcher in that area, but at the level where you can use the things as a data scientist. So it's this project, it's this set of lectures that really build on one another. And like we will first teach PyTorch, then we will teach about optimization and linear systems, and then we will teach about nonlinear systems, multi-layer perceptrons, and then we will teach about optimization and we'll teach about regularization. So that way, the first week kind of gives you the basics, the stuff that goes into every neural network you'll ever build. And then we have a second week that uses the tricks that we use to make things working. Like we'll talk about confidence, we'll talk about recurrent neural networks, we will talk about these more advanced concepts. And then in yeah. the third week, we you do... We can, we can explain those a little bit more to the audience in case they don't know as well. So yeah. convolutional neural networks that you could learn about in that second week, they are particularly widely used or renowned for their use in machine vision. So they're great at recognizing spatial patterns um, in uh, multiple dimensions. And uh, they've actually, though, despite their genesis in machine vision, hugely widely used in natural language processing as well. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's... It's the idea that if you want the local meaning of a picture, let's say I see in the background of your video, I see a guitar. Now, the guitar would be the same guitar if I moved it up or down or left or right or made it a little smaller, a little bigger. Mm. Confnets, in a way, are, are tricks that we use that allows us to use few parameters to solve those kinds of tasks. And that, that need for fewer parameters is always there. It makes the training of these systems much, much more efficient. And that is why it's so useful for data science applications. Nice. And then the recurrent neural networks that you mentioned, those are traditionally associated with natural language processing. So they are adept at uh, identifying patterns in a sequence. And so this could be a sequence of sounds, like the sound of my voice, or it could be a sequence of characters, a sequence of words. You could even use them potentially for financial time series or other kinds of quantities that vary over time. Yeah, and these are, I agree with you 100%. So I have seen Conrad's curriculum and the way that they go about teaching the curriculum is very similar to the way that I teach my own deep learning programs and built my deep learning illustrated book. So I think it's, it makes absolutely the most sense of, we did kind of, I do kind of the same thing where the first part, the first third is focused on these uh, foundational subjects, how you train a neural network, how the neurons make calculations, um, and then the second part is building on those foundations exactly like you are. And by coincidence, I suppose I teach convolutional neural networks first and machine vision. And then second is recurrent neural networks. Uh, what then happens in week three? Yeah. And then in week three, we talk about more advanced concepts that will include generative adversarial networks. I'm not sure if you've mm -hmm. seen it. GANs, <laughs> uh, they, they're called GANs. They're super yeah. awesome. They can... Yes. produce fake images of faces, for example. And we've, we've probably all seen that. Like, is this, fa is this image real.com or something like that? Yeah, where, yeah, you, yeah. Where, where it draws images that you or me have real trouble distinguishing from reality. And so it makes these images 
And we can do all kinds of graphics things with it. And that's, it's a new set of techniques that are now starting to be really used in industry. You know, like think Photoshop. Yeah, if, if listeners aren't familiar with generative adversarial networks already, GANs, which by the way is literally the next chapter that I do after recurrent neural networks. It's staggering how, <laughs> how this is it's convergent evolution somehow. Um, and so you can go to... Let, let, let me say something about convergent yeah. evolution. In reality, <laughs> in the field, when it comes to teaching deep learning, we are all learning from one another. Here is John's book for people. No way. So we are, of course, like wow. looking at all the other books. And we also called a lot of the other people teaching to figure out what's the best way of teaching things. Incredible. Um, that is a real honor to see that book there, Conrad. Uh, but so for listeners who haven't seen a generative adversarial network in action, a website that you can go to is whichfaceisreal.com, which uh, Conrad alluded to. And I just looked up the URL here in real time to make sure that that was the right URL. And it's a fun way. It puts two faces side by side and you have to guess uh, which one is real. And yeah, generative adversarial networks, GANs, are getting extremely good at uh, creating fake people. So interesting, interesting things. As you're saying, you know, we, we kind of think about them in the context of deep fakes and the kinds of issues that come about related to these, but there's a huge opportunity in allowing um, this to augment human capabilities where fashion design, apartment design, anything that happens in a visual space, all of a sudden you could be using these GANs to create beautiful photorealistic uh, simulations of what you're trying to, to create. There's, there's, there's another thing that's made by GANs, as far as I know. Um, there is now an app on my phone uh, where I can record a video of myself, uh, just a short video snippet, and it can then make me sing to one of the popular songs. I'm really <laughs> good at producing those videos. Nice. Do you upload those to TikTok? Do you have your own TikTok account? I don't have my own TikTok account, but I should be doing it. In particular, because some people at Neuromatch are now really interested in in bringing what we are doing to TikTok, and I'm very I'm so curious to see how that will work. Yeah, this is something we were talking about a little bit earlier. So, something that regular listeners would know about is that I primarily use LinkedIn. A lot of our guests primarily use LinkedIn, and that, that's where we recommend connecting. But uh, Conrad, with his academic background, something one of the things that Comrade and I talked about first when we met was how he doesn't really do anything on LinkedIn that academics don't really. Meanwhile, on Twitter, he has over 20,000 followers. And when I make tweets, it's just like crickets. Uh, so it's a funny, it's funny how we end up with these different worlds. And now the Neuromatch Academy is making big strides in Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's the plan, at least. Yes. I mean, like, I think in Twitter, for the academic community, Twitter fulfills a very important role, which is we, we switched from papers to preprints. Now, like We are no longer waiting two years until someone publishes our papers. Mm -hmm. As soon as we wrote them, as soon as we submit them, we also put them on archive. Mm -hmm. So Twitter kind of helps me at least find the papers of other scientists. And that's why I think there's so many scientists on, on, on Twitter. That's cool. It's amazing how things change. I mean, it's been 10 years since I was a serious academic and I wasn't personally using Twitter as a means of getting papers, but I don't think it made as much sense because we, we weren't doing that real-time publishing back then in the same way. 
yeah, I think a lot has changed. But like, hey, let's briefly go back to the syllabus. Totally. So, I was gonna I was gonna bring us right back. So third week, we've got generative adversarial networks. What else? I bet you have deep reinforcement learning. Uh, you bet. And not only do we have deep reinforcement learning, we will basically be doing deep reinforcement learning in the context of games. And you may have heard of Alpha Zero. Mm, a yeah. set of algorithms that basically beat humans at like a whole host of uh, computer games or non-computer games like go no like like it's impressive to see go seemed impossible five years ago and now beating a computer is impossible for all humans right and that transition was brought in in large parts by deep mind and tim lily who was part of those teams will be teaching that and it's wow be a wonderful day. that's cool yeah, you really do have a lot of the big rock stars in the research field who are devising on the cutting edge of devising these algorithms, speaking as the lecturers on your curriculum. It is incredible. Um, so you're talking about the board game Go there. So Go is, I think, the most popular board game in the world. But in the West, some a lot of people don't know it. Um, so you have uh, each, there's a, there's a two-player game, kind of like chess, and you have a player right. that has white stones, another player that has black stones, and you place them on a grid. And your your objective is to in, encircle your opponent's stones. And when you encircle them, you capture them, and you get that territory on the board. And the computational complexity of this, I'm probably going to get this stat wrong, but it's something like the possible number of games, or uh, the possible number of moves in the game of board configurations is more than there are atoms in the universe, That's right, um, yeah. which is astronomically <laughs> more complex than a game like chess, which, which, with which we had kind of expert system, AI systems that could beat the world's best chess players like Gary Kasparov in the 90s. And so what made Go such a, uh, a task that, so not only the computational complexity, but also there, there was this sense that the best Go players in the world had an intuition of how to be incredible and that this intuition, a machine couldn't figure this out. And, <laughs> yeah. And so I'm almost at my final point here, which is that if you don't know a lot about Go or deep reinforcement learning, a really fun movie that you can watch that has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes is the Alpha Go movie, which is available free on YouTube. It's also on Netflix. And it's about the story of machines becoming better than man at this, or people, at this, um, at this complex, supposedly intuitive uh, game. And I think it's a nice example why deep learning is so successful. Now, like if we look at how AlphaZero works, or AlphaGo works, it combines two things. It combines a position evaluation. A position evaluation, basically, you look at the board and you're like, that's great, I want to play this, versus, ah, this is not this is a lost game. You have this position evaluation. You call it intuition, or people, humans might call it intuition. And you can then combine that with a piece that we understand very well, which is the planning into the future. Now, like as a function of how I put my stones, what's going to happen? And that allowed us for these games to combine our understanding of the game, which is in the rules. We can write it down as text or computer programs together with like the intuition that implicitly is there in the neural network, which basically says, this is how games look like that are good, and this is how games look like that where you're really hopeless. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. The things that 
the things that are happening in the space are wild. This Alpha Zero that you talked about. So Alpha Go was able to beat the world's best Go players at this one board game Go. And then Alpha Zero, which you've mentioned a couple times, it's able to beat, uh, it's a single algorithm that is even better than AlphaGo at Go, but also is better than any existing algorithm, and I think maybe even better than people at chess and a game called Shogi, which is like a Japanese chess. Yeah, the game of chess is no longer hard from a computer <laughs> science perspective. <laughs> like, right. It's fun to hear that because I, I remember when I started in the field, Chess seemed so hard. Uh, I just, yeah, I just said it in such a silly way. Of course, if algorithms have been since the 90s been able to be people at chess, then if an algorithm can beat any computer algorithm, it can obviously also beat all people. Uh, so that was a silly question for me to ask anyway. Yeah, people are just not so good at playing games. <laughs> now, now let, let, let me, in that context, plug the last day from the last day, uh, from the last week, which is, yeah. we'll then talk about the things where deep learning isn't good yet. Right. The things that we need to think about in the future. So computer games, or like games like Go or chess, in a way they're easy because we know the entire world. Now, like everything that matters is right there on the board. But in practice, in the world in which we live that's around us, for, in which we humans live, most things are not known. Like, I can't look into your head when talking with you. I can't, I, I, like, like, there's only a very small part of this complex world that we can actually see. And yet we somehow need to causally understand the world. Like, how do aspects in the world influence other aspects in the world? And this problem of causality is something that so far deep learning has been very bad at. Right. And, um, and so we will basically spend a day talking about like the early approaches that people have to deal with these and like the problems aren't just causality there's also continual learning for example neural networks are really good in the way we usually use them at solving a task but you're not solving a task you solve a different task tomorrow and the whole world will look differently you know like it, it's 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 spring now the visual world looks very different in in winter if you train neural networks on summer data only, you will be really bad at, at winter. And humans have preciously little problem with that. So this, like how we can learn in a lifelong way is really interesting from a computational perspective. And we will round up the cost because we want our students to understand what deep learning can do for them. But we also want them to understand what deep learning cannot do for them. And that last day has an important role. That is also the final chapter <laughs> of my book, uh, Deep Learning Illustrated. It's, yeah, it's uh, uncanny, uh, except that I didn't have that continual learning piece in there. I hadn't thought about that at that time. But things like causality and definitely where there's opportunities for big strides to still be made. And so here's an interesting, I mean, this is a bit of an open-ended question. So we've been talking about AlphaGo. We've been talking about AlphaZero. So part of what makes those deep reinforcement learning algorithms so interesting is that they're more and more general and that they require less and less uh, programming, so and, and less and less training data. So AlphaGo relative to AlphaZero, AlphaGo is amazing at Go, AlphaZero is good at many board games, or many games with complete information. Um, in the evolution of deep reinforcement learning algorithms, including AlphaGo precursors, we went from requiring lots of training data to requiring no training data at all, and simply having the algorithm play against itself 
And so right. this also, this led to, this is a bit of a tangent, but it led to really interesting things happening because it meant that um, it, it didn't care what the standard curriculum was for learning how to play Go. It yeah. could, it could learn advanced moves or what we consider humans to be, to be advanced moves. It could learn those early on and then learn some basic things later. Um, I, I also heard that it's gotten so good that now Go players will try and learn from yeah. how the algorithms play because the algorithms don't have these human preconceptions that we exactly. are always bringing into it. There was a quote from some champion Go player said that it's like watching aliens play the game. It's like this alien <laughs> intelligence amongst us. Um, so, so that's a bit of a tangent, but the, the point that I was trying to get to, and that, I, so I talked about in, uh, episodes 438 and 440, which aired, um, earlier this year in January, 2021, I talked about artificial general intelligence and, um, I talked about mu zero, which is another algorithm, another artificial general intelligence, uh, or another, uh, deep reinforcement learning algorithm that followed from, um, alpha zero and, so there's this there's so artificial general intelligence. Let me take one second to explain what that is. It's this idea that you could have an algorithm that could learn as diverse uh, a number of tasks as a person could. And so this ties into your point about continual learning and how learning is different. So so is this an area that you work on in your research in particular? I guess if you're interested in intelligence in general, this must be a big part of what you think about and write about. It's it's a lot of what I'm thinking about at the moment. I don't think we have great solutions yet, mm -hmm. but I first want to point out how interlinked those things are. Now, like, if why why do we want to understand causality? And a lot of people say, well, causality is kind of hard to define. What do we even mean with that? But in reality. We walk through this world. Most things in the world that we could possibly do are really bad ideas. Now, I can push the <laughs> wall here at a random place. Nothing right. will happen. Right. But if I use the light switch, something will change. So right. there's a small, of all the things that we do, there's like a small number of channels with, with which we really influence the world, the future. At some level, if you give me only one task, I don't need causality. I just need to figure out what is my right, right move. But if you tell me, well, like, quite possibly it will be dark later on and you might want to figure out how to make the house bright, uh, then I will, I will try and figure out what those, I will have curiosity and I will be interested in how causality works. So at some level, these concepts like curiosity and causality, they drive from the fact that we are doing multitask, continual learning, that we are always preparing ourselves for what we will have to do in the future instead of just being good at one task. And that's in a way why, why even Mu Zero is easy relative to success in the real world. And animals can do much better behavior in the real world than any algorithm that we have. Right. Why? Because they've been pre-programmed to deal with this like continual lifelong multitask learning situations that we're in and all animals that i've ever observed have like this deep desire to understand the world around them and uh, it's hard to give that to artificial systems yeah so do you think that these kinds of approaches deep learning deep reinforcement learning so we have these issues around uh causality continual learning do you think that in 
in time, the these existing approaches like deep learning and deep reinforcement learning, that we can adapt them so that they are better suited to those problems? Or do you think that we might need completely different approaches? I, th- I, th- I think we can. I, th- I think that deep learning will always be part of how we'll solve problems. And in fact, a lot of people, including my friend Josh Vogelstein, say that we should never have called it deep learning. Because mm. what, what is it? What is it? When we talk about deep learning, what is it really? It just means that we build system with lots of parameters. We figure out for each parameter, would it be better if we make it bigger or would it be better if we made it smaller? And then we yeah. do it on all of them at the same yeah. time. But like slightly clever approaches, but that arguably is just what we mean with learning. It's a system that makes itself better and it's a system that is not low dimensional. So in that sense, I think it has to be part of it, but I think we need to go beyond it. And I think as humans, we go beyond it. You know, like in our head, if I ask you like, hey, John, like want to come visit me in Philadelphia, you will run this program in your head. We're like, yeah, and I, then I go to Penn Station and I get on the train and I need to first buy the ticket. And you can do this reasoning there. And when it comes to these kinds of high-level reasoning approaches, it's not enough to just build a neural network. And like, it's clear that we somehow need to deal with things that are a little like symbols. And I think this is a lot where the future of that field as we head towards general intelligence has to be. Right. So yeah, you you described, well, you, you kind of defined a, a deep learning as gradient descent in a way where we're adjusting parameters. Um, and so I might define deep learning as having these specific neural network algorithms and a few layers of them. But even I guess even in deep reinforcement learning, we don't have multiple layers. Is it, it would you not define it that kind of way? Yeah. So, so, so in a way, uh, if I'm a little cynical, the, 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 the word deep learning comes from artificial neural networks, how they were called before, being ridiculously uncool. So when <laughs> I, I, I started entering the field and going to the NeurIPS conference, like late 90s, back then the number one predictor of your paper being rejected was it using the word neural network. Mm. So even at NeurIPS. Even at where... NeurIPS. At that point of time, it should have been called KIPS for Kernel Information Processing System. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was about support vector machines. Right. So, 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 so basically, when then it was clear from the work of uh, Jan Lecon that there was a lot of mileage to be had. And like for a long while, he was having these digit readers that were quite well using, deep, uh, using artificial neural networks. Mm-hmm. But then when AlexNet came, mm-hmm. which uh, massively beat, uh, so AlexNet was this network that, um, the first one that, that people call deep learning, that basically just said, okay, let's use a really big algorithm. Let's use graphics cards. Let's use a whole bunch of other tricks to make things better. And then let's beat the guys at object recognition. And beat the guys at object recognition, they did. So they beat the, st- the benchmarks by a massive amount. And they immediately replaced the previous machine learning approaches for object recognition. Mm-hmm. And so... At that point of time, they needed a new moniker because saying artificial neural networks would have made it sound bad. <laughs> and some of the inventions helped them go deeper. Like AlexNet was deeper than previous. Uh, previous. Why graphics card made that possible? Large data sets made it possible. 
And then a whole bunch of tricks. They use this thing, what's called, which is called ReLU, which is almost linear. Like it's, it's zero below some value, linear on the right-hand side. They used better ways of initializing the network. They used a cool way of using the hardware of the graphics card for the whole thing. So there were lots of innovations in that space that allowed the networks to be bigger, but like it's still an artificial neural network. Now it's like twice as deep. And by now it's 100 times as deep. But right. uh, but in in a, in a way conceptually, I think it, it's 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 the same intellectual line. Nice. All right. So bringing it back a little bit, we were talking about whether deep learning approaches like this um, could be a part of uh, having a increasingly general algorithms, maybe an artificial general intelligence algorithm that has all of the capabilities of learning of a person. But you mentioned there that it would need to have a better representation of symbols. And so is that something is that something outside of backpropagation, like some kind of some knowledge, some factual knowledge, like um, is of relationships that it gets from Wikipedia or something? Yeah, I don't think it's it 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 can easily be done directly in in gradient descent. Now, like, uh, we can easily do things that you've never done before. Right? I can ask you, imagine a monkey jumps into Conrad's video frame right now and starts sitting on his shoulder. You can do that, no problem. Um, we can't at the moment explain those things meaningfully to algorithms. And like how this, this thing, like add an object to a scene is remarkably hard. And... Uh, and similarly, causal things. You know, like if I have a phone and I drop it, what's going to happen? You can very meaningfully say something to that. It's very hard to teach that to neural networks. And why? Because like at some level, things like phone, it's, it's a symbol. And like you can say, sure, I can embed it in some vector space, but there, it still exists in the scene where I am. There exists so many objects. It's not that it's like just like one big vector. and and our representations of reality kind of support these modifications, you know, like add object, remove object. What would happen if? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things where it feels that the way we talk about things is actually more fundamental than, than like a deep learning network would work with it. And if we look at the deep uh, learning networks, these like semi-symbolic things, are usually built into it. Now, like for example, Alpha Zero, there is, a, or like Alpha Go, there is a very symbolic thing, which is like, how would the bot would look like if I now use A7 and then I use B16 and then I use C3? If I play in that direction, that's kind of built in, but that is very symbolic if you think about it. Like that that's very much not deep learning. And in the same way, if you look at more modern systems, you might have a recurrent system that does something and then does something else. It feels like in that sense, we are building in symbols into the architecture with which we interact with the neural network. So I think the future will see a lot of these systems that that have not just deep learning, but that also have a structure that that matches the kinds of problems that you want to solve in the world in a symbolic way. Very cool. That is such an interesting topic to hear about. Lots of food for thought for me, and I imagine for lots of our listeners as well. Conrad, how did you end up in this position where you are today thinking about these problems? So how did you become expert in both 
biological intelligence, biological neural networks, as well as artificial neural networks. What was your journey to becoming a full professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a distinguished university, studying this incredibly interesting thing? How did this happen? Yeah, I think I just like to think about really exciting topics. And I always didn't feel comfortable doing the same thing for a long period of time. I feel like I will learn much more by exposing myself to many different disciplines. So originally I studied physics, but within about two years, I decided that I find biology very interesting and uh, started taking courses. And when the physicist in Heidelberg basically told me that that was a no-go for a physicist, I defected <laughs> to Zurich. Right. And the guys in Zurich were like, sure, we consider brains to be a perfectly legitimate objective of study from physics. And then I went to London, learned a lot more about statistics. Uh, but I was already like, during my time in Zurich, I was building these little neural networks. I didn't think about it, that it would eventually be a field. But I was trying to build neural networks to describe parts of the brain. And then I did some time in cognitive science, sometimes in statistics. Uh, and uh, more broadly, I I'm just interested in sitting down with exciting people and thinking about like the big problems in life and like the big problems for society. And, um, and in that sense, my portfolio has been like this wildly overlapping set of projects, including molecular biology. We were working on this idea that we could use DNA as a ticker tape, as a, like, like, like as a cassette recorder. No, like, what's Whoa. DNA? It's like a long tape. Yeah. Uh, let's build a recorder that writes how and what a neuron does over time onto that tape. And hmm. so we've been working on that. We've been working on a lot of different wow. areas. And uh, UPenn has this awesome professor position, which is called Penn Integrates Knowledge, whose official job description is bring the disciplines, bring the different departments at UPenn, the different schools kind of together and have projects that span those disciplines. And so for me, this is just wow. like the most wonderful fit for what, I'm always, what I've always been interested in. It's P-I-K, Penn Integrates Knowledge? That's right, yeah. Cool. Wow. Yeah, that does sound like a really good fit for you. <laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> but, but in general, I, I do believe that for everyone's careers, it's useful to expose yourself to different ways of thinking. So right now with the Neo Match Academy, it helps me a lot about thinking about organizational structure that I would never have done before. I believe that for a lot of neuroscientists and cognitive scientists and material scientists and so on and so forth, Getting exposure to deep learning is really important. Similarly, I believe for a lot of people who work as data scientists in a company at the moment, getting this set of deep learning ways of thinking about data science under their belt is going to be really useful for what they'll be doing in the future. Yeah. And so I guess that's a way, something like the Neuromatch program that you created. Uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, or that you're... Is it fair to say that you created it, that you devised this, or I guess it's kind of it's something that came about with a number of. Uh... It's 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 a big group. I I was with all the neural match things. I was one of the co-founders of it. But there's it's it's a big group, and it's too big a problem for any one person to pull off. Our CEO is Megan Peters, who's doing a wonderful job at managing, uh, of basically herding a lot of cats very effectively. Nice. And so where I was going with that is that it sounds like this curriculum that you've been involved in developing 
um, it sounds like it's the perfect way for people to get the to be able to apply these kinds of deep learning things um, in industry if that is something that they're interested in. You're probably deliberately tailoring it so that uh, you know your own excitement, the, the excitement shared by people uh, who are developing this curriculum. Um, comes through in that whole program and it allows people to go from uh, being data scientists without deep learning in their portfolio to being able to apply that in whatever industry they're in. Yeah, that's why we got together that amazing set of people. And like, like, of course, someone like me could teach a deep learning course. In fact, at, at UPenn, together with Lyle Anger, I did teach the, new, uh, the deep learning course. But we can make it much more meaningful by getting the world's experts together on that. But if we just get the world's experts on it, it would be ununderstandable. So we surround these experts with teams that give them really good feedback on what they can do, what people can realistically learn, and what they can't. What the things are that are really useful for people's careers and which things they can learn in a more specialized course at the league. Nice. So other than deep learning, which it sounds like is clear from conversation with you that you think that it will continue to be a hugely valuable uh, skill for data scientists to have for years to come. What other kinds of skills should our listeners be be developing to prepare themselves for the future? So, so I think, and and this might just be my personal opinion. Uh, I think uh, people need to think about causality. Why? What we really do as data scientists in the world is we help make things better. Now, we help companies make more money. We help companies be more efficient. We help people in science make better sense of their data and so forth. What everyone really wants to do is make things better. What does it mean to make things better? Mm. It means that if we do A, things come out better than if we do B. This is fundamentally a causal question. And of course, we can A-B test, and everyone should know how to A-B test. Now, we can like randomize things. Half of the people see one web page. Half of the people see the other web page. We see which one has like the better click-through rate or something. But, but, but in many cases, we want to figure out how to make things better without being able to basically randomize everything. Right. There's a whole set of, uh, of, of approaches for that. Uh, quasi-experimental approaches is one that my lab is very interested in these days. But importantly, everything that we tell someone, you should do X, you shouldn't do Y, is ultimately a causal statement. It says it will be better if you do this than if you do that. Machine learning doesn't answer those questions. It can be part of that, but we need to think in a causal way. We need to ask, okay, what would be better instead of what is correlated with it? Let me give you an example of how things can go badly wrong. Let's say we are in medicine. We take people uh, that take some vitamin. We discover that the people who take that vitamin live longer than the people that don't have that. Now, should we recommend to everyone to take that vitamin? Right. Uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah, we, we don't have enough information. <laughs> I don't that's, know. That's, that's right. What could be go going on? In that case, we actually know that people that are high socioeconomic status have a lot of money, have time to dedicate for that, have money to buy, for, buy the vitamin, are much more likely to take that vitamin. Now, also, in American society, people that are rich tend to tend to live longer than people that are not, which is a big problem. And, um, and now 
we're in that situation where in reality, the vitamin does absolutely nothing for your health. You right. throw it out, no problem at all. But if we would just do simple-minded machine learning here, we'd find that there's a strong, significant correlation of taking mm -hmm. vitamins with longevity. We would yeah. start recommending that to everyone. Yeah, that would yeah. be wrong. And this kind of logic happens in every company, like on a daily basis. We want to be very careful about confounders, and that's something that, in a way, mm -hmm. lives outside of traditional machine learning. I want people to think about Kazali. Nice. That is a really thoughtful point to make. Nobody has ever answered that question on this podcast with that answer since I've been host, and it's a good one. It's so important <laughs> and kind of obvious. Um, so you sit, as we've mentioned many times, you sit at this very interesting position straddling biological neural networks, artificial neural networks, what the meaning of intelligence is. So a question that I haven't asked a while on this show is what do you think is going to happen in our lifetime? So let me, let me frame that a little bit more. So you already talked about AlexNet, which in 2012, thanks to, as you um, alluded to, ever cheaper data storage. So much bigger data sets, much cheaper compute, you know, the idea to do things on graphics cards um, instead of just regular CPUs, um, you know, that has continued. So 2012 is now nine years ago. And in that time, we have much, much, much cheaper data storage, much, much bigger data sets, compute, same idea. We have these, you know, huge parallel GPU systems and lots of uh, open source software libraries like TensorFlow and PyTorch that take advantage of this highly parallel distributed uh, GPU processing. So these trends will continue to happen for presumably decades. And we're also going to have ever more abundant sensors, 5G rollout, um, you know, faster internet connections between everyone, sharing archive papers and conference proceedings and doing things like Neuromatch and learning from each other. Um, and so we have more and more innovation and sharing. So technology in this space is advancing at a faster and faster pace every year. So... What do you think is going to happen in our lifetimes? How interesting are things going to get? Yeah, this is, this is just a wonderful question. So I think you can make two very, very different stories. In one story, you're right. You know, like we, we keep pushing on deep learning or variants thereof. We kind of figure out these algorithms that ultimately can reason as good as humans. And... Uh, and we basically live in a hybrid world where half of the intelligent beings are robots, half are humans. And we, we pray that they don't overtake and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and uh, rule everything. Right. But you can make the exact opposite point. And, and I, I want to credit my friend Ben Recht as, as like having opened my eyes to that, which is every roughly 30 years or so, people discover regression. <laughs> they discover all the wonderful things they can do with linear regression. And then at the end, someone points out that the real problems in life, like causality and actual real thinking, cannot be solved by it. Now, you can view modern deep learning as just one more of those examples. No, you can say, Maybe in the 60s, we did regression in linear systems. And there was this huge excitement where people were like, hey, now you have a machine that can detect things. It will soon think like humans, and everything is going to be very different very soon. And then 
Marvin Minsky pointed out that there's like very, very simple logical problems that those machines can't solve, like the XOR problem. For, for listeners who don't know that, it's basically a system that has two inputs. Uh, they can be bi they're binary, or one, zero, zero, one, and so forth. XOR means it should spit out one if it gets one, zero, and one, one as input, and otherwise it should spit out zero. And it's provably not solvable by a linear uh, problem. And now you can say like 30 years, 20, 30 years later, people are back, neural networks are back, and they do backpropagation. And everyone gets super excited about all the problems that they will solve. And pretty soon people point out that like a lot of the interesting problems cannot be solved. By right. Now you can say, we are just in this early phase. Now we're, and, and a lot of things might feel like they're very cheaty. Now let's say, let's say GPT-3. GPT-3, for people who haven't heard about it, it's this, uh, this wonderful natural language processing thing, and you will hear a lot about it if you go to a neural match. You can, it, it, you can prompt it with some text, and it generates text, and it feels almost like English. Uh, no, I mean, like, it definitely feels like English language. Now, if you first see it, you're super impressed about it. But GPT-3 has basically been trained on just about every text that has ever been said on the mm -hmm. internet. So mm -hmm. it has this massive training data. Now it just turns out that under most circumstances, people say the same sentences over and over. That mm -hmm. a human can meaningfully reason with you based on a very small data set and GPT-3 consumes all the data in the world and it makes the most elemental logical mistakes. For example, mm -hmm. if you give it the prompt um, tell me the story of uh, here's a couple of unicorns that live on a mountain, they speak English. And the first sentence produced by, by GPT-3 is um, uh, in this space, there's the unicorns, they have two horns each. And you're like, hold on, what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> we talk right. about unicorns and you talk about two horns right. each. And it turns out that like one horn, two horn, it's all correlated in big yeah, data. Yeah, yeah. But, but you see what that there's no real understanding and so in that sense you can say sure we will use deep learning to solve all kinds of business relevant problems and like academic problems but it will always just be a part of it and the really interesting things like how we figure out how the world really works in a way happen outside of that space now where on that continuum we are i don't know now like there w there's gonna be like a little bit of like we really move things forward we might have self-driving cars or something like that but there will also certain problems that it's not really very good at solving. beautifully said that was uh yeah beautifully said i i i, I definitely fall into disillusion a lot about this time being different, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you're right, though. We're still, whether we have the regression model happening over many neural network layers, it's yeah. still a regression model. But what about <laughs> quantum computing? Isn't quantum <laughs> computing going to, or, or, or using DNA? We'll have DNA computing. Everything will be different. And it, it won't, it'll be causal. Because it's DNA or quantum that's what we need. It needs to be DNA, quantum computing, and then we'll figure out the causality. It'll be a, it'll be a, a pinch. In, in fact, let me give you like a great example of kind of misinterpretation, a great other example. So um, neural networks 
usually have this property that you can do adversarial attacks on it. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. I can show you a picture of a banana and put a sticker on top of it, and your neural network will say, this is a toaster. It's just that that sticker that I put on basically contains features that very much look like a toaster. In right. reality, a banana with that property never happens. But if you'd see that thing, you'd be like, that's a banana with like a weird sticker on it. <laughs> but a neural network right. will be, that's a toaster. Now, right. um, it, it actually works quite well in the real world. If I take an object and I attach a sticker to it, which has written in English text, the name of something else, it's often re, uh, wrongly recognized as the thing that I write on it. Mm. So what that means, if I take a car, I put a sticker on it, which says empty trash bag. A lot of algorithms will think this is an empty trash bag. <laughs> and I think it, 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 I can't get that idea out of my head to go once like, you know, like self-driving Teslas all over the place to walk through the city with a friend and basically stick a little, this is an empty trash bag to all the parked, like really expensive right, cars. Right. And then observe how like a bunch of Teslas destroy the entire city. <laughs> right. Why? Because this, <laughs> because <laughs> did you make up that one? Did you make that one up on the spot, or have you you come up with that one before? That was really good. I, I, I thought about it. Like oh, that's great. Bit. I love that. But um, but what it means is that there is this adversarial attack on neural networks that humans wouldn't have. That um, that is truly problematic. You know, like, and you can't pr you can't guarantee that a neural network will not encounter an adversarial environment. Cool. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this for days and days and days. Uh, and well, maybe we'll have to have you on another episode soon to get even deeper into some of these topics. Um, but uh, we should start winding down the episode, which means that it's time for that staple question at the end of the Super Data Science episode. Conrad, do you have any book recommendations for us? Maybe about things we've been talking about today or just I'm sure whatever is interesting you, whatever you've been reading about will be great. Yeah, so, so I can highly recommend to anyone listening to this to read a book on causality, because as you heard, I think that understanding the world causally is very important. The most accessible introduction to that, probably at the moment, is The Book of Why by uh -huh. Judy Pearl. Uh -huh. The Book of Why is a beautiful, readable exposition of the need to think about the world around us in causal terms. Nice. I almost shouted out Judea Pearl, rudely interrupting you. But when I did that, I was thinking it was going to be his causality book. Um, and uh, of course, Book of Why is an even better recommendation because it's, a, I think it's, yeah, way more accessible. Uh, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go around recommending causality by, J, by Judea Pearl to my friends. Yeah, uh, causality by Judea Pearl is a wonderful, deep, thoughtful book for specialists who want to specialize in causality. Right. The tools that Julia Pearl exposes allow you to prove exactly under which circumstances you can know or not know about causality. It's just a wonderful set of ideas, but the book of why makes it live for people who haven't been in the causality space for a long time. Nice. That is a great recommendation. And then I have a recommendation, which is that if you're looking to get into deep learning and you're able to take three weeks off take this Neuromatch curriculum that Conrad is helping set up. I am so jealous of anybody who gets to learn deep learning that way. I wish I could go back in time and have that be how I did it. It sounds like an absolutely perfect curriculum. 
And I wish I could go back in time for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, these kids these days are so lucky. And um, and also I'll note that, so one of the prerequisites that you mentioned, so you mentioned things like you know linear algebra, being able to do simple matrix operations and um, being able to calculate derivatives. So if So between now and August, if that's what's holding you back from signing up for Neuromatch, I've created a machine learning foundations curriculum, which teaches exactly those topics, linear algebra and, um, and calculus, and in the context of machine learning and also using Python libraries like NumPy, TensorFlow, and PyTorch. So this would be uh, probably something that you could do in the interim and be all set to take the Neuromatch uh, program by August. So. I think that that is very exciting. How should our listeners contact you? My guess, your number one pick would be Twitter, and then number two is TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think number one is uh, number one is definitely Twitter, but you can reach me on LinkedIn. There's far fewer people competing for, for <laughs> messages being seen yeah. by me on LinkedIn. Yeah, after talking with me a couple months ago about LinkedIn versus Twitter, Conrad is now giving LinkedIn a shot and he's making posts. So if you want to get his attention, um, he has only a tenth as many followers on LinkedIn as on Twitter. So you can go bother him on Twitter. You can uh, like and love his posts and he'll really appreciate it because he feels like there's too many tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn, if you come from the outside, is just like a bizarre environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I won't disagree with you on that. All right, so thank you so much, Conrad, for being on the show. I learned so much. I had so much fun. And I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thanks for having me. What a terrifically interesting episode. Thanks to Professor Kurting, we were able to dig into the innovative Neuromatch curriculum that enables small groups of students with similar interests to learn deep learning together. Convolutional neural networks, recurrent neural networks, GANs, deep reinforcement learning, we covered all of the major approaches in deep learning, including the revolutionary AlphaGo and AlphaZero models. We also covered where deep learning doesn't work today for enabling human-level intelligence in machines such as issues with causal inference and continual learning. The understanding of symbols was a potential solution that Conrad brought up to overcome these issues. Wonderful to be able to learn from a deep AI expert like Conrad. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Conrad's Twitter and LinkedIn profile, as well as my own. LinkedIn and Twitter details at superdatascience.com 469. That's superdatascience.com slash 469. I'm always happy to meet listeners, so please do connect and feel free to tag me in posts with your thoughts on the episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover on the show next. Since this podcast is free, if you'd like a hugely helpful way to show your support for my work, then I'd be very grateful indeed if you made your way to the Data Community Content Creator Awards nomination form. The link is in the show notes. Obviously, we'd hope you could nominate the Super Data Science Podcast for Category 7, the podcast or talk show category. I'd also love my name, John Crone, nominated for Category 8, the textbook category for my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. And finally, I'd also love my name, again, John Crone, nominated for Category 2, the machine learning and AI YouTube category for my YouTube channel, which contains tons of free videos on deep learning, linear algebra applications, and machine learning libraries. 
The Data Community Content Creator Awards themselves are coming up on June 22nd, and I hope to see you there. All right, thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another incredible episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.